This is Street Signals, a weekly conversation about markets and macro brought to you by State Street Global Markets. I'm your host, Tim Graff, Head of Macro Strategy for EMEA at State Street, based in London. We're midway through November, the holidays are approaching, and it already feels very, very quiet in markets. You have very few event risks on the horizon for the rest of this year, and as a consequence, what you're seeing is very low volatility. You have equity volatility having crashed lower over the last couple of weeks with the improvement in risk appetite. Rate volatility is still elevated, but is also starting to show signs of cracking and falling. But throughout this, the most unusual of these patterns, I think, has been in FX markets where volatility isn't just low. It has been low for some time. It's very, very quiet. And this week, We're going to talk about why it's so quiet. It's a very meta Street Signals this week. With me are two previous guests on Street Signals, Michael Metcalf, who is the global head of strategy, as well as Peter Vincent, who runs the trading desk here in Europe. So gentlemen, welcome back to you both. Good to have you back on Street Signals. Thanks for having us, Tim. Good to be back, Tim. Thanks. Absolutely. So listen, let's answer this question of why FX markets are so quiet right now. I think to preface this, up until the middle of this year, you can probably explain away some of this quietness. We were still in the middle of a recovery from last year's risk-off period. That tends to be lower volatility environments when when you see that in markets. I'm really thinking, though, about from August onwards, it seems more unusual. In the last few months, you have equity markets that have basically trended lower. You have fixed income markets, which have dealt with things like worries over the U.S. fiscal position. You've seen extreme volatility in long rates. You've had some weak treasury auctions that have created volatility. And yet, FX markets have really just been kind of this bastion of calm. Pete, I'll start with you. What do you think is the most logical or most likely reason for that amidst those risks? So for me, Tim, I think interest rate volatility and differences in, in interest rate outlooks between economies that often drive currency changes. And, and since the summer, we've had a big convergence in, in this higher for longer narrative of central banks that we're, we're basically topping out. So all the major central banks have kind of hit their terminal rate or got very close to it. You know, we're talking about a few basis points priced in now for the major, you know, for the US potentially. And, and when we were talking in the summer, you know, that was quite different. We had UK rates potentially going up to 6% never happened and, and we're now going into year end with a situation where the amount of cuts that are priced in into all these major blocks is, is roughly the same so if we look at the interest rate uh, markets we look at the march march 24 25 futures in in the us it's 100 basis points of cuts we've got 90 for the ecb we've got 80 for the bank of england we've got roughly the same in canada as it is in the states so really the markets found its way to a point where all these central banks are potentially going to ease roughly the same amount next year and we're going to have to wait for the data to come out so you know you could argue that europe's slowing quicker than the states but but their rates are already lower than the states so we've kind of reached this middle ground to my mind that until we get an answer to that which we're not going to get until interest rate previous interest rate hikes really start kicking in um, we're going to get this period of low volatility which is what we're seeing and i think there's an there's another factor for my mind, I think investors are hiding in the short end of the yield curve. When rates were zero, they, you know, they, they were forced to take take duration risk and 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 buy equities that that performed um, like long duration assets. And and now we've got these higher yields in the short end of the curve. Investors don't need to take risk. And one of the things we look at is cross currency basis, which is 
um, the premium that non-US investors pay to switch their domestic currencies into dollars so they, they can buy US assets. And if you look at the cross-currency basis in, in Europe and in the UK, that, that premium is the smallest it's been for the past five years. Um, and, and the one currency where it's not in, in Japan, um, where it's about in the middle of the pack where it's been for the last five years, is, is, the, is the country where we haven't had any interest rate hikes and, and investors can't um, enjoy those, those high yields in, in the short end of the curve. You bring up a couple of things, and Michael, I'm going to go to you on this. I mean, I think the point on hiding in the front end is certainly borne out by some of the things we've talked about on this podcast the last few weeks, the rise in cash holdings in particular and cash being a viable asset class. But there's two things that stand out, and you just mentioned the yen, where that is clearly the divergence here from that consensus view on rates, and and yet we still don't have really any volatility coming around that view. You know, you look at yen cross volatility, it's very suppressed. But also thinking about the factor Pete mentioned of low activity and just hiding out, is that, do we have evidence or would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I, th- I think to some extent. I mean, the the, the main thing, obviously, is, is is the rise in cash holdings. Do we see evidence for investors hiding out in cash? I mean, absolutely. You know, cash holdings are up 6% from their lows uh, from a, a, a year and a bit ago. And, you know, if you look across the asset classes, investors are kind of back to neutral on equities. They're now quite significantly underweight fixed income, and they've got a big overweight in cash. So definitely being compared to where we were at the start of the year, there's been a move back to benchmark. Uh, and j- just in terms of cross-border activity, it's probably worth noting that I think it depends what asset class you look at. So uh, in equities, we've definitely seen, certainly in the last couple of months, we've seen much lower cross-border equity flows across developed markets. Um, and to, pe- to your point about you know foreign money going to the US, the US has been part of that. So uh, you know foreign demand to US equities has been weak. But the and 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 also actually to be fair for for, for eurozone equities as well. So you know the the general kind of more defensive tone we've seen to markets has definitely hit cross border activity in the equity space. Where our data is, I think perhaps a bit more surprising uh, is that you haven't seen that in fixed income. So fixed income flows, particularly foreign institutional demand for treasuries, has actually been pretty robust. I guess it'll take us a while to see if if some of the fiscal noises over the weekend and the the credit watch whether whether that changes that. But for the moment, at least, despite the volatility, you know, actually appetite for. Uh, Foreign appetite for, for for U.S. fixed income has been pretty robust, um, so so I, I I think there is definitely some evidence to support the idea that there is you know, lower volumes are there because uh, you know both equities and bonds have struggled uh, and there's, there's 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 less activity to hedge. You know I, I I get that, but but here's a here's an interesting thought. This goes to to to, to the rate volatility point. We, we we went back through history and looked at what the long periods of you know, relatively low periods of FX turbulence were. This may be a coincidence. I mean, it's one data point, but I think it's just worth throwing into the discussion here uh, is that the longest period of low FX turbulence we've seen actually was during the 94-95 tightening cycle, which you know, I think before this one was the last time we had you know, such a severe disruption in fixed income markets. And I, f- I feel like it's when, and this this is, you know, I think supports Pete's point, is that you know, when rate markets are so volatile and everything's moving together, you know, FX just tends to go a bit on the back burner and vol is low. And that's certainly what happened in 94, 95. But you, you then end up with this really puzzling conclusion. And I think this is where you were getting to with your question, Tim. I, I did remember the question. I will get to it. <laughs> uh, is is that with yen, with yen vol as low as it is, uh, and and yen rates as low as they are, carry is back 
FX alpha opportunities uh, would seem to be rising because carry looks a really attractive strategy right now, but it's looking like an attractive strategy in you know perhaps the one central bank next year that will move against all the others. So that's that, that's maybe the dilemma to, and the, the puzzle that we should try and pick apart. Well, and to take to take that market, it looks like we're going to get a, a big game of chicken between the FX market and, and the Bank of Japan, right? Because at the moment, the way the yen is, is trading suggests that the market thinks that Japanese yields are too low and, and the yen is going to keep weakening up until the point that potentially forces the Bank of Japan's hand. Now, whether that means intervention or it means they actually change and start, you know, start normalizing interest rates, depending on what your your your, your definition of normal is in, in Japanese interest rates. But it seems to me that seems that the one trade that's going to be quite interesting next year is how weak the yen can become before the before the bodge change tack. One thing to add to this, though, is, and this is the case for the dollar, it's for the, the case for the yen. Typically, you think of those periods where you have perhaps the yen catching up or just a period of rising volatility that is yen positive. And yet, the correlation between both of those currencies, at least using a trade-weighted basket, which is maybe not the best way to look at it at times, but nevertheless, is quite low. And so, my question, I guess, would be if you get this move from the Baj or you get more forceful actual intervention or even very forceful verbal intervention that leads to actual intervention in, in the currency, do you suspect that correlation just goes back to the way it used to be where the yen is positively correlated with vol or considering that the investors we track are already overweight yen, I'm guessing, presuming, waiting for that move. Is this just still a continuation of a low ball environment, or is it really a game changer? Uh, you know, it's, it seems reasonably clear that the, the yen has lost its safe haven status and correlation to vol, while the BOJ has been, you know, has taken a different path to the other global central banks. And so you might assume that you know, once they start their tightening path proper, that normal service will be resumed. But uh, again, maybe the thing here, it will, it will depend a little bit on the cross-border flows mm. uh, and uh, you know and i think one of the surprises so far is that you know, even though you know, long-term japanese yields have been gradually allowed to drift higher uh you know we've seen no repatriation yet you know the, the, the ministry of finance said it still shows that japanese banks in particular have got a pretty healthy appetite for treasuries now of course that might change but if that money is still flowing out of japan even if it's hedged it it, it, it does beg the question as to because you know the the uh, the safe haven rationale for the yen was always that you get repatriation in times of trouble, and we simply haven't seen that. So the risks around the yen are absolutely two-way. You would assume that if they tighten policy, the yen will somehow gain a footing against some currencies at least. But if they don't, it looks an awful lot like benign neglect, even though they say they don't want the yen to weaken. Uh, if ultimately they don't tighten, they're implicitly allowing it to you know, as we know, you know, you know, FX markets go to the point where they're prompt a policy response. And so, you know, if they don't intervene heavily enough, don't say the right things about yen weakness, then actually, you know, the yen could, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a joke to say that the yen could overshoot. The yen has, oversho has overshot. It could overshoot even more. For those, for those people that are bullish on the yen, I, I think they might get a, an absolutely fantastic level to buy, to buy it next year when we really do get to an extreme point where use yields are we know they've topped and they're coming down and japanese yields look like they still have room to rise so it might be a case of keep your powder dry for potential vol event next year if, if we ever get it but we can we can move to the chances of us recession and how bad that might be <laughs> i guess just just kind of ponder in how many year ahead pieces uh will the yen be the favorite trade i'm thinking on just just on my own 
uh, uh, experience that I think I think yen against something was my favorite trade last year. You know, it worked for about three months and 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 then it was kind of completely undercut. But uh, you know, if if you feel that the rationales that everyone gave for yen strength last year, I suspect that everyone will you know, trot out the exact same rationales this year. It's just a question of whether the BOJ will deliver, and that's a huge uncertainty, I think. I think that's getting to the point I was making with the question, which is that people have position for that. I mean, I think, I think that was the consensus view at the beginning yeah. of last year, or it was it was a really strongly founded consensus view. You know, a lot of times consensus views are correct, and that had certainly a valuation case for it. I think at the time it certainly had a positioning case for it, but positions have adjusted, which is why I find it interesting that it may be of all event if it's somewhat positioned for. But I think that begs the final question. Actually, this wasn't meant to be a podcast about the yen, but it is interesting we're gravitating there. Does the Bank of Japan have the ability to surprise, as in do we think these comments that might push the yen stronger or adjust policy, are they going to be scheduled or do they have to almost do it intra-meeting to allow for the, some of that surprise? When you're operating under a system of tight yield curve control, I think by definition you have to surprise because mm. if you don't, you, you know, it costs you a lot in terms of intervention to defend the peg before you move. However, I think with the tweaks that we've seen, which have been a gradual abandonment of YCC, but but with the cushion that it's still there if if things really get out of control, I think now actually that there's not as much reason why they couldn't start to do more forward guidance on short rates, you know, with a wide band of possible intervention available to them if they worry that pressure on long-term yields gets too much. So that's the puzzle for me is they don't seem to have done that yet. But I think to answer the question, no, they don't need to surprise anymore in terms of, you know, they, they, they could start to flag it. I think I'm just a little bit surprised that they haven't started to do so given inflation is back. Mm, yeah, Pete, actually something you brought up, I kind of want to start to think about what can change things. And we've covered Japan as a potential catalyst. But you mentioned something in your remarks a little bit ago about the possibility of a US recession. And I want to link this to the first point you made, which is about rate expectations and how they've all kind of become the same for the major economies, of course, Japan accepted as we've covered. Do you think this is a case where those expectations diverge because of the US becoming weaker? Is that kind of the great unknown here? especially since we have evidence that that's happening already in the Eurozone in the UK? Or is it the reverse? Do we start to price earlier cuts from the ECB and the Bank of England, and maybe that creates potential volatility in markets? Yeah, so I think the answer to this probably um, goes back to something that Lee Farage has focused on quite a lot, and that's the, the different mortgage structures in, in, the, in the economies and how much more sensitive the consumer is to changes in, in interest rates via via changes in mortgage rates in, in the UK and, and in Europe. As I sit here now, I, I, yeah, if, if we went back to the start of 22 and we're saying, okay, rates are going up, I'm not sure many people had Eurozone rates getting close to, to 4%. And, and I guess that the big unknown for me is, can the Eurozone handle rates at this level for any period of time? And you know, it's, it seems that Germany's already slowing. You know, we're seeing the rate, the rate hikes hit. In Europe, I, I just don't know how bad they're going to be, and and the factors that have held the U.S. economy up, the, you know, the, the, the fiscal impulse and uh, the excess savings post post the pandemic, they've diminished and then they're potentially gone. But I'm not sure they're going to go into a complete unwind. So I think the sort of U.S. economy has got less of a drag on it still compared to the European economies. So I think if we are going to get a sort of vol event 
and and rapidly falling growth it's going to be out of europe and the uk uh, more than the us and 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 what might be the surprise still next year is how the us economy continues to hold up you know for the first half of the year i could be very open minded on this because you know when we've seen such rapid tightening things can change quite quickly i'm not saying this is how i see it playing out i think that's where the risks are potentially at the moment well it's interesting because i think this is of a piece with what i mentioned on yen insofar as our fx holdings measures already have a euro underweight, already have a sterling underweight, have had this pronounced dollar overweight. And so in a sense, the pain trade would seem to be US underperformance. Michael, do you see that as feasible, as possible, as maybe challenging the notion that that Lee's put forward and that Pete's just reiterated that the US is a bit more insulated, I guess, from past policy tightening efforts? That's certainly you know, going going back to the whole year ahead outlook thing, you know, that that's been the big surprise this year is that the US has done as well as it has. You know, I think it's a little bit about the mortgage market, a bit about excess savings, as as Pete and Lee have rightly pointed out. But then in terms of what might surprise, well, I think what would surprise is actually if we did eventually get a US recession. It, it's kind of curious that our own recession likelihood index, which actually at the start of this year was low compared to other measures, uh, is actually now much higher and is kind of consistent with an eighty percent chance or more of a recession in the next 12 to 18 months. And of course, 12 to 18 months is still a long way away, but I think I think relative to expectations, and I th- when you look at our FX holdings metric, as you, as you kind of point out, that you know, investors are overweight yen and the dollar, a bit of the dollar, I think, overweight, you know, might be predicated on some safe haven demand. But I think I think in general it's predicated on the on the idea that you know, US growth has been much better than European or UK growth. Uh, you know, this year, and so so that, that you know that's one of the re- you know, so if that's one of the reasons why investors are overweight, the idea that you do get a recession, and it's you know the income data isn't quite as strong that you know there's some uh, and it's look this is hard to say after such a, a robust Q3 you know almost five percent growth two and a half percent core inflation they, they, those are just great numbers but I, I I do get the sense that's probably the peak and that you you look at things like the lending data um, uh, your consumer credit data. Uh, you know there, there there are there are weaknesses there. Uh, you know industrial production has been weak for a while. You know one of the reasons why our recession likelihood index is as high as it is. So I think the thing that su- might surprise and would produce a volatility event uh, is a U.S. recession and an unraveling uh, of the big dollar overweight that investors still have. This is kind of an unfair question to finish on because I haven't flagged it in advance. But are there any other unknown unknowns or unknowns that have maybe a small probability of happening that you think could metastasize into something bigger over the coming, say, 12 months? Something that's maybe bubbling under the surface that you're thinking about that could potentially really push markets next year and really get us out of this low volatility trough? I think it's clearly the US election. And I think if if, if Trump wins, which is looking increasingly likely, I think that could be a, a massive event um, for FX markets going forward. There's a whole host of things he could do um, that could put volatility in markets via geopolitical risk. Um, I'm thinking the likes of leaving NATO, stepping away from being the kind of global policeman of the world and saying, you know, you can do what you want in your regions. Um, I think that's the, that's the one thing, but that's obviously right at the end of, of next year. But I do, obviously, as we get towards that, people are going to be thinking about that very, very closely. Mm. I don't know whether this is no longer an unknown. I, th- I think it, I think it's been bubbling away under the surface for a while, and is 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 now beginning to get a little bit more press. Which is just this theme of fiscal sustainability. It popped its head up very clearly in the UK uh, this time last year, and then disappeared again. It's kind of popping up in different places now. Uh, you know, obviously there's a 
bit of a focus on the US with uh, and as obviously where the the politics plays in but uh, it, it's been really striking to me how you know after the GFC the whole focus was on austerity and getting back to fiscal balance that hasn't occurred after the pandemic in the slightest but i think perhaps because of that because you know we we then had a you know very very slow recovery and so you know governments have been much less keen to rebalance the books but there's a lot of supply and, and we've already had the odd let's call them sloppy auctions in the us uh, you know if you start to get some of those in europe or you know particularly in italy you know that can produce a lot of volatility both in fixed income and in fx markets so that would be my uh, I, I'd say it's semi-unknown at the moment rather than a complete unknown unknown. It's all very interesting. It's a, we've got a lot to play for in the coming year. I suspect the one of the strongest cases for volatility rising is just that it is a mean reverting time series. You have very flat uh, vol curves, very low front-end volatility. That tends not to last, but waiting for it can be a very expensive game. And I don't want to rack up any bills for either of you two. We probably need to call it a day there. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Sam, me too. Thanks, Tim. Just one housekeeping note for you. Even though Street Signals is brought to you and recorded in London, I, being an American, still do celebrate the holidays of my home country, and I'll be taking Thanksgiving off. So we'll be skipping a week. There's a long overdue break there as well for us, but we'll come back to you with a new episode the week after. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of Street Signals from the research team at State Street Global Markets. This podcast and all of our research can be found at our web portal, Insights. There, you'll be able to find all of our latest thinking on macroeconomics and markets, where we leverage our deep experience in research on investor behavior, inflation, risk, and media sentiment, all of which goes into building an award-winning strategy product. If you're a client of State Street, hit us up there at globalmarkets.statestreet.com. We'll see you next time. This communication is provided by State Street Bank and Trust Company, hereafter referred to as State Street, and is for informational purposes only, and is not intended to suggest or recommend any transaction, investment, or investment strategy. It does not constitute investment research, nor does it purport to be comprehensive or intended to replace the exercise of an investor's own careful, independent review and judgment regarding any investment decision. This communication and the information herein does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities or any financial instrument nor is it intended to constitute a binding contractual arrangement or commitment by State Street of any kind. The information provided does not take into account any particular investment objectives, strategies, investment horizon, or tax status. The views expressed herein are the views of State Street as of the date specified and are subject to change without notice based on market and other conditions. The information provided herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable at the time of publication. Nonetheless, we make no representations or assurances that the information is complete or accurate, and you should not place any reliance on said information. State Street hereby disclaims any warranty and all liability, whether arising in contract, tort, or otherwise, for any losses, liabilities, damages, expenses, or costs, either direct, indirect, consequential, special, or punitive, arising from or in connection with any use of this communication and or the information herein. State Street or its affiliates may from time to time as principal or agent for its own account or for those of its clients have positions in and or actively trade in financial instruments or other products identical to or economically related to those discussed in this communication. State Street may have a commercial relationship with issuers of financial instruments or other products discussed in this communication. This communication may contain information deemed to be forward-looking statements. These statements are based on assumptions, analyses, and expectations of State Street in light of its experience and perception of historical trends, 
current conditions, expected future developments, and other factors it believes appropriate under the circumstances. All information is subject to change without notice. This communication or any portion hereof may not be redistributed without the prior written consent of State Street. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.